This is Rachel Fields and Sam Swartz with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Republican governor candidate for, excuse me, Republican candidate for governor Tim Michaels and sitting governor Tony Evers announced today that they have agreed to the debate before the November election. In a joint press release, the political rivals stated that there are certainly plenty of differences between them, but one place they both agree is that voters deserve the opportunity to hear directly from both candidates. The debate is sponsored by the Wisconsin Broadcasters Association and will be broadcast out of Madison on October 14th. Republican candidate for Dane County Sheriff Anthony Hamilton has been placed on administrative leave by the Sheriff's Department less than one week after he filed a lawsuit against them. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that Hamilton was placed on leave for spreading confidential information regarding what he calls an illegal search and seizure that took place in March of last year. Hamilton filed a civil rights lawsuit against the department last Tuesday, saying that he was disciplined for raising concerns about that search and seizure. Hamilton recorded the 2021 raid using a, quote, non-department-issued helmet camera, which he later shared footage of on the instant message app Signal. While sharing the footage, Hamilton called the sergeant participating in the raid a slur for a mentally handicapped person. He also called the sergeant a baby bird. Madison District 17 Alder Gary Halverson has apologized today for his brief enrollment in the far-right hate group The Oath Keepers. In a statement released today, Halverson said that he was deceived when he joined the group, calling white supremacy a cancer in our society. Halverson then criticized his fellow Common Council members who criticized his involvement with the group. Halverson said that associating him with white supremacists is offensive and possibly defamatory. He ended by saying that he has consistently voted with care and compassion for marginalized communities in Madison and has stood in solidarity with his BIPOC colleagues in his time on the council. The UW-Madison campus was defaced with anti-Semitic graffiti last week. The Daily Cardinal reports sidewalk chalkings labeling Jewish student groups as, quote, racist, genocidal, and having blood on their hands, end quote, appeared on the the first day of classes. UW-Madison has over 4,200 Jewish students, making up around 13% of the total student population. Sydney Tepner with the UW-Hillel Foundation said that she does not believe there is any immediate threat to Jewish students on campus, but still finds the graffiti quote, quote, upsetting and disheartening. The city's Public Safety Review Committee is looking for your thoughts on the police department's 2023 budget. The committee first started asking for public input on the police department's budget back in 2020, forming a subcommittee to act as a go-between for the community, the mayor, and the common council. They are asking for your thoughts on several questions, including the top tasks the department should focus on, what tasks the police department does that should be covered by another department, and what the Police Safety Review Committee can do to help you better understand the police department's budget. The meeting will be held virtually this Wednesday at 5 p.m. Information on how to join that meeting is available on the City of Madison's website. Screen printers at a local print shop are back to work after picketing the business and are now looking for a union. The Capital Times reports that almost all of the nearly 10 screen printing and sewing workers at Crushinit Apparel have signed union cards to join the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades. Last month, a group of workers were threatened with being fired after they signed a letter calling for better conditions at the plant, leading them to picket the business. 
Workers say that the workplace was, among other things, too hot from the large printing machines, especially when the owner wouldn't run the air conditioning. Additionally, workers say that their paychecks would regularly bounce, leading to some waiting weeks to get paid. The workers filed for their union on September 3rd, and unless the owner voluntarily recognizes their union, an election will take place sometime next month. Also from the Capital Times, a committee on student safety and wellness within the Madison Metropolitan School District is calling for additional resources to address sexual violence prevention in the district. The committee is calling on the district to have a more coordinated partnership with the Dane County Rape Crisis Center, an organization that supports students who have experienced sexual violence. While the Rape Crisis Center does work with the school district, students say that they were unaware of that relationship and that the center center says they do not have the access and support it needs to implement itself in the district. Last year, hundreds of Madison East High School students participated in a walkout in protest of the school's handling of a sexual assault that happened after the homecoming dance. After that, the district seemed to be moving in the direction of a more explicit partnership between the district and the center for and the center to proactively address sexual violence, but that partnership did not materialize. And now on to today's top stories. UW-Madison is often looked at as the progressive bastion of Wisconsin, but even the state's top university has skeletons in its closet. That's the theme of the newest exhibit to come to the UW-Madison Chazen Museum of Art, which opened its doors for the first time today. The exhibit, created as part of the university's public history project, looks to highlight UW-Madison's discriminatory history. WORT producer Nate Wegehout headed to the new exhibits earlier today. UW-Madison unveiled their new exhibit with the university's public health project today, which examines discrimination on campus throughout the decades. Located on the main floor of the Chazen Museum of Art, the exhibit, titled Sifting and Reckoning, contains photographs, testimonies, and documents outlining the history of discrimination on the campus. The project officially began back in 2019, but as LeVar Charleston, Deputy Vice Chancellor for Diversity and Inclusion for the university, explains, the idea of a project such as this began after the Charlottesville rally in 2017. The Unite the Right rally saw members of the alt-right, neo-Nazis, and white supremacists march in the streets of Charlottesville, Kentucky, killing one counter-protester. After that rally, then-Chancellor Rebecca Blank looked back at UW-Madison's history and saw that two groups had registered on campus called the Ku Klux Klan in the early 20th century. Charleston says that Blank then wanted to do a study looking back at UW-Madison's history of discrimination. Chancellor Blank commissioned the study group uh, to do this work. Its members concluded that the history of UW needed to confront what was not the aberrant work of a few individuals or just a couple of groups, but a pervasive campus culture of exclusion, of racism, and religious bigotry that went largely unchallenged in the, 1990, in the early 1900s and was really a defining feature of American life during that time. The two Ku Klux Klan groups on campus, founded in 1919 and 1926, were allowed to meet on campus without objection from the university, though neither group had official ties to the national Klan group, the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. 
Casey Lucchini Butcher is the director of the Public History Project. The award-winning curator and historian says that she was first drawn to the project because, unlike other studies of racism in institutions, the UW's Public History Project was just as the name implies, public. Public history, at its simplest, is history written and made accessible for the public, for the people in our community. While many other universities have looked into their histories, no others have made public engagement the center of their work. This project has. All of our work, including this exhibition, is focused on our community and how best to make this accessible to them. The work done with the Public History Project will not just live as an exhibit. John Zumbrunnen is the Vice Provost for Teaching and Learning at UW-Madison and a professor of political science. He says that the work and findings done as part of the Sifting and Reckoning exhibit will help to influence teaching across the campus. In my own teaching, I've often seen the value of asking students to engage with complex, challenging issues in our world by thinking about how those issues appear here on the UW-Madison campus. I found, for example, that as students learn about the protests on this campus in the 1960s, they think about democracy and citizenship and their own role in democracy in new and complex ways, and almost always with differing opinions. Not everything in the exhibit is ancient history from before our time. Scattered throughout the halls are testimonials from students taken within the last two years outlining their own experiences with discrimination on campus. One testimonial from an anonymous black student talks about how his professor accused him of cheating because he did not believe he could write so well. Another from an anonymous Asian American student talks about how her roommate once left chopsticks under her pillow as a joke. Some of the items in the exhibit can be hard to stomach, as LeVar Charleston points out. There are many depictions of blackface, speeches on the benefits of eugenics, and reports from the university's investigation into gay students on campus. But Charleston says that the point of the exhibit is not to simply shame the university for its past. So I want to acknowledge uh, that there will be difficult aspects of this exhibit, right? Uh, that there are episodes in this institution's past that, uh, that do not reflect well on people or organizations or perhaps the university as a whole. Um, but there are also powerful stories of resilience and, 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 and places where students and employees show tremendous courage uh, and, and have really landed on the right side of history to help progress and move our institution forward. So I hope people come away with a renewed sense of pride in UW for being transparent and honest about its past and for making significant strides in many different areas. I hope people see progress in this exhibit. The exhibit opened its doors today and will run until December 23rd. After that, the exhibit will live on online at reckoning.wisc.edu. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggy Help. The rainy days here in Madison are coming to an end, and warm weather should be sticking around until the end of the week. Temperatures will be warming up in the rest of the week, and wind speeds will be higher. With more on what to expect, here is your weather forecast from producer Caitlin Davis. Weather in Madison has been miserable, with cold temperatures and lingering rain the last few days. But we should be clearing up for the rest of the week. Temperatures are currently sitting at 59 degrees, and winds are still high at 10 miles per hour coming from the north-northwest. The barometric pressure is currently staying steady at 29.8. It may feel a little sticky outside due to the high humidity currently sitting at 94% and a cloud cover of 100% in our area. A little bit of a fun fact, 
fog and mist are created by water droplets, but fog is a cloud that reaches ground level where mist forms where the water drops are suspended in the air by temperature inversion or changes in humidity. Fog is much more dense than mist and is the reason why it sticks around longer and it is harder to see in. With low temperatures has becoming low allergy counts. Trees and ragweed pollen counts are in the low categories and there is no grass pollen present. The UV index is lowering as we move into the fall. With the rain we have been seeing these past few days, the UV index has not escaped the low category. Looking at the UV index into the rest of the week, most days are barely escaping the moderate category, only a few reaching the high category. With today's high barely touching 60 degrees, we are still currently pondering between the low 60s and the high 50s, even into the later hours. Precipitation is still lingering, and winds are coming from the north-northwest, but will lessen in speed into the later hours. Looking into the rest of the week, there are low possibilities for rain chances, but we are consistently seeing steady winds paired with higher temperatures and humidity. But don't worry, here comes the sun. Tomorrow will be sunny with temperatures hitting the mid-70s. We will not be seeing temperatures reaching the 70s until the afternoon, but later into the evening we'll be warming up. Wednesday is looking to reach the higher 70s and will be mostly sunny. Thursday again looking to reach the high 70s, and this is really the day that we will be seeing higher wind speeds that look like they will be coming from the south. Clouds act as blankets that trap heat, and with having warmer wind coming from the south this week, it's what's keeping those temperatures higher. Looking into the weekend, we are still seeing those higher temperatures and wind speeds, but Sunday we can be seeing a chance for some rain showers in the morning. With your WORT weather report, I'm your producer, Caitlin Davis. It's now 6.20 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. After three years of fighting, the nurses at UW Health and hospital administrators have come to an agreement, bringing the nurses one step closer to once again having a union. This comes just a day before the nurses were set to strike if hospital administrators did not recognize their union. The deal averts that strike and calls for no additional strikes in the future. In return, the nurses will be able to regularly discuss staffing levels, workloads, and other concerns nurses say are threatening patient safety with hospital administrators. While hospital administrators maintain that they are not legally allowed to recognize a nurse's union, the agreement paves the way for a deal to head to the courts for them to decide the legality of the nurse's union. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke, spoke with Giselle Vu, a general neurological neurology nurse at UW Health, about what conditions are like at the hospital and why they are pushing for a union. I'm on the line now with Giselle Vu, a general neurology nurse over at UW Health. Giselle, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for having me. So just to sort of start things off here, tell me a little bit about your experiences in the hospital there. What what have you sort of seen over the uh, past few years? Um, so I started at this hospital in uh, 2014, and at the time I believe... Um, we were still at the tail end of a union at that point, and things were very, things were doing well. We were well-staffed. Uh, we had 
good ratios for patients to nurses. Um, we had good support systems. And as all that, as years went on, a lot of that started kind of falling away, I'll say, um, right into the day where we are now, um, where the quality of care that we provi- are providing isn't where it used to be because of the unsafe staffing ratios. And that's been really difficult for me to swallow. And so now I, a deal was struck just uh, earlier yep. today, I believe, that finally got finalized here between the nurses and the administrators over at UW Health. Uh, can you sort of tell me what, what is this new deal? Uh, what, what, what's all included in that? So there's, there are a lot of components to the new deal. Um, and I think it'd be, I'd like to leave that to the um, people who were at the table to kind of give you that information. I just know it paves the way for nurses to have a voice and to um, be able to hopefully see improvement in how the hospital is run as the next few years goes by. And I, I know that sort of Governor Tony Evers sort of helped play a role in this. Do you, do you, what can you tell me about that? Um, he was um, the mediator. We had asked him to please come because we needed um, just someone who had the background he did with his family, with his um, parents being in the healthcare business. And he just, he helped bring the two parties together to get our thoughts across. And he has been a great champion for the nurses. And so, when you first heard that this uh, that this deal was taking place, what were what were some of your initial thoughts? Were you glad that a, a deal could be reached here? Yeah, um, I was very glad that a deal could be reached. Um, it gave, gives me hope that things will improve and things are we are on the process of um, of getting what we need to provide the Wisconsinites. Um, good health care. And so looking forward a little bit, what what happens now with the nurses? Obviously, the strike that was set to uh, start tomorrow is off. So what 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 happens now for uh, the nurses? We get back to work. And but now that we have um, a voice in what we need, we can now speak freely with each other and with the administration about what is needed. Um, to provide the care we know we can provide, the quality of care we know we can provide. And sort of go over that a little bit for me. What what sort of things are needed in the hospital to provide this quality care? Um, nursing retention, um, getting more experienced nurses to stay, um, less turnover with that, um, just because we do need more experienced nurses to be able to teach we need new, more experienced nurses to teach the newer nurses, you know, just how things are, things go and stuff. And we don't have those, a lot of those resources right now. And having that, keeping keeping those experienced nurses on will help with this, just the teaching aspect of what UW Hospital is, as it is a teaching hospital. Um, and we'll be, have better staffing ratios. We'll be able to take our time with our patients and, you know, walk them in the halls or just 
give them an ear that they can vent to if you know as they're dealing with a hospitalization rather than worrying about am I giving this patient all the time and attention they deserve or they need and not rush off to the next task to do, so to speak. Sort of wrapping things up, uh, Giselle, do you have just any final thoughts that you'd like to uh, share with us here today? Um, just very glad that this happened, um, that our voices have been heard, and now that we can work together um, to providing better care for our patients, I'm I'm excited for that. Um I, before all this happened, and if the strike was going to happen, I was close to looking for a new job um, just because the patient care aspect of inpatient nursing was, it was burning me out, working the extra hours and stuff um, just to make sure that our patients were getting the quality care deserved. And now that this um, has been passed, I'm hopeful that I will see changes happen sooner rather than later, and I won't have to leave this position for a while. I've been talking with Giselle Vu, a general neurology nurse over at UW Health, uh, about the deal hospital administrators struck with nurses today in order to prevent their strike from taking place tomorrow. Uh, Giselle, thank you so much again for coming on and talking with me. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields, here with my co-host, Sam Swartz. Thanks for joining us. Tomorrow marks the anniversary of the Attica Prison Rebellion of 1971, which took place in upstate New York. 1,000 heavily armed National Guard, prison guards, and local police violently retook the prison, killing 40 people, including nine guards who were being held as hostages. It was a high-water mark of prisoner resistance, and its effects are still felt today. Feature contributor Harry Richardson tells the story. Today's intro is from Gil Scott Heron's Winter in America. And now it's winter. It's winter in America. And all of the hillers have been Tomorrow, September 13th, is the anniversary of the crushing of the Attica Prison Rebellion in 1971 in upstate New York. By the time the yard was retaken, dozens were killed. The incident produced the highest number of fatalities in the history of the U.S. prison uprisings. After the massacre, police troopers were heard cheering, white power. But it was a pyrrhic victory for the carceral state because prison rebellions multiplied after Attica. There had always been prison riots, but in the 60s and early 70s in the U.S., those rebellions multiplied, reflecting the social movements on the outside, and took on an unprecedented political character and the ferocity of class war, and came to a climax in Attica. Prior year to Attica, prisoners at California's Folsom Prison had struck for 19 days, the longest U.S. prison strike to date. Most of the 2,400 prisoners stayed in their cells without food, 
for the strike's duration. Attica's inmates also knew about George Jackson, imprisoned in California's Soldad prison for a $70 robbery. His book, Soldad Brother, was one of the nation's most widely read books of black militancy. But Jackson was shot dead in the back by prison guards while allegedly trying to escape in late August 1971. Attica's inmates had a long list of grievances building. All their guards were white, while 54% of Attica's prisoners were black. Prisoners spent 14 to 16 hours a day in their cells. Their mail was read. Their reading material was restricted. Their family visits were conducted through a mesh screen. Their medical care was disgraceful. Their parole system was inequitable, and racism was everywhere. Most Attica prisoners had not been tried, but had been pressured to plead guilty by the state. The accused took plea bargains to avoid the threat of harsher punishment. The process was described later by the report of the Joint Legislative Committee on Crime in New York as a charade, rivaling the dishonesty of the original crime, but perpetrated by the state. Parole hearings at Attica averaged under six minutes. Decisions were handed out with no explanation. Attica's prisoners organized protests all summer in 1971 to no avail. Then on September 9th, a series of conflicts between prisoners and guards ended with guards giving relatively minor discipline to two prisoners. In the tense atmosphere, this spark set off the revolt and inmates broke through a defective gate and took over 40 guards hostage. During the revolt, the prisoners set up a remarkable community. A group of citizen observers included New York Times columnist Tom Weicker, who later wrote the book A Time to Die, on the rebellion said, The racial harmony that prevailed among prisoners, it was absolutely astonishing. That prison yard was the first place I have ever seen where there was no racism. One black prisoner later said, I never thought whites could really get it on. But I can't tell you what the yard was like. I actually cried it was so close. Everyone so together. The prisoners demanded removal of the warden, amnesty for revolt participants, and better conditions. The state agreed to 28 of the 33 demands, but not amnesty. The prisoners refused to back down. Then on September 13th, Governor Nelson Rockefeller called out a thousand National Guardsmen, prison guards, and local police and ordered the prison retaken. Rockefeller, who later became vice president under Gerald Ford, had been considered a liberal Republican, although he was part of one of the nation's wealthiest families. The New York State Police launched tear gas into the yard and fired nonstop into the smoke for two minutes, using weapons that included shotguns and personal firearms, loaded with ammunition outlawed under the Geneva Convention. Inmates had no guns. 31 prisoners were killed, along with nine guards. After the revolt, guards beat and tortured the prisoners. Attica inspired a wave of other prison rebellions in the U.S. involving over 20,000 people. Back in 1972, around the time of the Attica revolt, the U.S. held 1,600,000 people in prison, on parole, or in some other aspect of the criminal justice system. But today, that number is over 3 million, about five times higher. Prisoners continue to struggle for fair treatment and pay for work in prison and people on the outside for prison abolition. And that is our story for today. For the past is the past, I'm Harry Richardson. The average life expectancy for a U.S. resident is now down 76.1 years, down from 77 years in 2020 and 79 in 2019. That's according to the latest vital statistics released from the UW National Center for Health Statistics. 
The drop is the largest three-year drop in 100 years, and the situation looks even worse for non-white Americans. Earlier today, 8 o'clock Buzz host Brian Standing spoke with Michael Engelman, the training director of the Center for Demography of Health and Aging at UW-Madison, to find out how this can happen to a country with the largest economy in the world. So when we look at this decline from 2019 till 2021, clearly COVID-19 has been a huge contributor to declining U.S. life expectancy, but it's not the only factor. How do COVID deaths compare with deaths by other, other causes over the last three years? So COVID is responsible for about half um, of the decline that we saw in this past year. Um, and so this, what, what, this tells us is that this latest decline um, in life expectancy reflects both uh, our kind of continuing failures in pandemic preparedness and response, but also that the impact of COVID comes on top of a lot of inequities that were already existing in our country um, in terms of racialized inequities in wealth generally and healthcare access and also other longstanding patterns of, uh, of geographic segregation and political polarization that reflected, that, that contributed to sort of where we were and how the, how the pandemic found us. Now, you mentioned some failures in, in U.S. response to uh, COVID. We've already seen, other countries have seen a bounce back in life expectancy as some of the most severe effects of the pandemic start to recede, but the U.S. has not. What's different here? That's right. Um, so we've we've seen both a, a bigger impact last year and the fact, as you said, that uh, in other countries we're seeing improvement, whereas here we're seeing um, continued continued effects. So um, there there are a lot of things happening here, both on on the COVID side and on on the other cause side as well, right? So in terms of in terms of COVID in particular, is that uh, our pandemic or our pandemic experience mapped onto some of these existing patterns, right? It disproportionately affected um, relatively younger members of indigenous and black and Latino communities, especially those who were serving as frontline workers. Um, and it also became very uh, polarized along partisan lines and affected different groups at different points in time, right? So over the last year, um, it began, it continued to affect many uh, indigenous and black and Latino communities, but also affected the white population more broadly. So let's dive into some of those uh, discrepancies between different uh, demographic groups within the United States. Um, let's, let's start with uh, indigenous Americans uh, who seem to be suffering the, the real brunt of, of COVID, even though their, their vaccination rates are actually pretty high. What's, what's happening in the indigenous population? Right. So you're right that uh, vaccine uptake rates have been very high in that community, but there are also long-term uh, inequities that this population uh, has been dealing with over time. And so the, the report shows that for the, this American Indian and Alaska Native population, as, as the census categorized them, right, they experienced the greatest decline in life expectancy. And a lot of it was driven by COVID. It also had to do um, with unintentional injuries, with chronic liver disease and cirrhosis and suicide and heart disease. And so these are a lot of um, sort of chronic and long-term conditions that are associated with poverty, lack of access um, to resources and lack of access to healthcare that really sort of preceded the pandemic um, for, for many, many years were a long-term issue um, and resulted in, in difficulties in, in terms of health um, for this group over time. And then the pandemic sort of came on top of that 
and exacerbated things. Now, when I look at the CDC report, there's a lot of deaths attributed to what are called residual, which I assume means other or unidentified, and they're pretty significant in some uh, demographics, and particularly the indigenous population and some of the uh, black and Hispanic uh, statistics. What might some of those residual causes include? Oh, so, I mean, you know, Everyone has to die of something um, <laughs> when they do, and the and the reports uh, can't can't cover everything. So um, you know there there is a range of things that that include both um, chronic a variety of chronic conditions that people may be uh, struggling with for years um, before they have to do sometimes with infectious diseases. You know, besides COVID, that are still of course circulating um, around in the world, and they can also have to do with both uh, unintentional injuries and with things like homicide and suicide uh, as well. So there are multiple categories of things um, that can be related kind of most most proximately in terms of what people die of. And then there's sort of the, the broader social conditions that put people at greater risk of, of all kinds of health. So let's let's talk about you know some of the the details of some of these you know background disparities as as you describe them. How more? I mean, what what is affecting specifically people dying at an at a younger age if you happen to be black or Hispanic or indigenous in the United States compared with uh, if you were white? Yeah, that's a really good question. So early on in the pandemic, we heard a lot about the impact of the pandemic on mortality, particularly for oldest, for the oldest adults, right? So the pandemic um, hit particularly harshly in, in locations like nursing homes, um, where many older people or the oldest old people um, tend to be concentrated. And we know that there was a big concern about uh, making sure that vaccinations were available to the older population um, because of their greatest greater vulnerability. But at the same time, what we saw, especially as these mortality statistics started to come out, is that um, it was really younger members of Indigenous and Black and Latino communities that were impacted very, very highly um, as well. And so whereas among white Americans, the deaths were concentrated at older ages for these other populations, you saw mortality at younger ages. And really, that has to do with some of these social conditions, right? So many of these folks were working as frontline workers, whether in healthcare settings, right, aides in those nursing homes or in hospitals or in clinics, whether it's working in um, sort of food and retail locations that involve a lot of interaction with the public. And so the uh, um, the concentration of folks from from these backgrounds and these types of jobs and in these types of situations, living, um, being more likely to live in intergenerational households um, and just sort of living the types of lives that are structured to involve more interaction with people than what is possible for many people with with higher incomes who perhaps are more able to to work from home. All of these things contributed to the sort of both higher and earlier burden of COVID mortality in these populations. Now, we should point out that even if you look just at non-Hispanic white populations, uh, the total life expectancy is only 76.4, which is pretty pathetic on the global scale. What, right. What's going on with the U.S. healthcare system and uh, why can't we keep people alive longer? <laughs> That's a good question, right? In some ways, the United States is really good at keeping people alive. We actually spend a lot more money 
um, per person on on healthcare expenditures than most of the, than all of the other countries um, actually that we're compared to, and particularly even other high income countries. And yet we don't seem to see the same kind of return. And there are a lot of explanations um, for this that that get put out. I mean, I think some of this has to do with just a very different way in which our healthcare system is structured, right? So the the privatized nature, the fact that we have large disparities in who has access to health insurance and who doesn't, and therefore who can access healthcare and who doesn't, um, the relative emphasis that other countries put um, via kind of a, a broader healthcare system on prevention rather than kind of reacting to, to poor health once it's become serious enough to require uh, medical care and hospitalization. Those things definitely um, contribute because it turns out that on a population scale, um, you can do a lot more for improving life expectancy by preventing <laughs> disease than by trying to treat it when it's already there. And how much of a factor is, is infant mortality in these life expectancy statistics? We often hear that uh, accounts for a uh, disproportionate uh, amount of, uh, of life expectancy. And if you make it to, say, age two or three, your your expectancy actually goes up. Is that true? Yeah, it is true. So, you know, the humans are born pretty vulnerable and there is a higher risk of mortality, especially in the first year of life than there is later in childhood and in adolescence. And then the risk starts to increase again um, when people enter, enter adulthood. And so the way that life expectancy is calculated also gives a lot of weight, right? So losing someone at a, at a younger, younger age, especially in infancy and in childhood, makes a much bigger impact um, on life expectancy relative to deaths that happen at, at older ages and closer to sort of that average that most people attain. And so certainly infant and childhood mortality are a big impact. And this is one area um, where the United States does particularly poorly when compared to other countries. So in the U.S., we actually are pretty good at caring for people's health when they are adults and especially over the age of 65 when more people have access to medical, medical care via Medicare but we do less well in infancy. And so compared to other countries, we are particularly, we, we, fall, we fall short, particularly when we look at our ability to, to deal with infant mortality and really make sure that, that all babies that are born um, in the United States have, have a chance to make it past the first year and into, into the rest of their lives. So what would need to happen to move U.S. health outcomes and life expectancy into the same neighborhood at the, at the sort of top of the scale as, say, Italy, Australia, Japan, or even Macau? Yeah, <laughs> good questions, right? So most of these countries that, that you listed have some kind of national health care system that, like I said before, prioritizes not just health care when people are sick, but also large-scale prevention and making sure that care is accessible accessible to the entire population, right? So a lot of things that happen um, in terms of infant mortality and mortality at younger ages can can be prevented um, if people have access to resources. And a lot of this also has to do with the social and economic inequalities that not only make it difficult to access care once people are sick, but also we know that, that poverty and that economic inequality and a lack of sort of... The, uh, inequality in the distribution of resources geographically across the country, whether it's between states or even within states between, say, urban and rural centers, all of these inequalities impact people's likelihood of accessing care when they're ill. It also impacts their likelihood of getting sick 
in the first place um, and needing this care. And so coming up with a system that makes these resources and makes the, that the resources that help promote people's health um, in the first place more equitable, I think would go a long way towards bringing our overall national statistics to be more comparable with those of other countries. So tell us a little bit about your work. What, uh, what do you do as the training director for the Center for Demography of Health and Aging? So I, as the training director, I work on uh, programs that train our, our graduate students and, uh, in sociology and demography and population health and economics who do research that has to do um, with population health and health disparities and think about aging, both in terms of the well-being of older people, but also in terms of factors uh, in early and midlife that influence people's health and well-being in later life. My, my own research um, uh, focuses on the types of exposures, social and economic, that in early and midlife that create disparities and inequities in how long people live. So I think about about life expectancy, how it differs across populations and what are the different kinds of events and exposures and disparities in early and midlife that create those disparities that we observe at the end of life. And do you provide advice to policymakers? Do you find people turning to you to say, how, hey, how do we improve these outcomes? You know, not, that's, not a, that's not a day-to-day part of, part of my work. It certainly is something that we think about when we, when we do our research and we try to put forward ideas that will help improve improve that and that's certainly the hope I think of all researchers is that the evidence that that they produce and the recommendations that they make based on the data get taken uh, into account. I think the frustration um, of many people in, in this field that I work in, and there are certainly many of them both at UW and throughout the country, is that it often feels like policy decisions are based on a, a variety of, uh, of political considerations, only some of which right, take into account the data and what the evidence tells us. All right. We've been speaking with sociologist Michal Engelman of the University of Wisconsin. Thanks so much for joining us on the 8 O'Clock Buzz. Thanks very much for having me. The time now is 6.52 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news here on WORT. Today, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new movies on the small screen. First is a documentary on former NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick, who took a knee to protest police shootings of African Americans. It's streaming on Vudu. Second is a fun, warm-hearted fantasy set in 1957, Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, which is available at your friendly local DVD co-op. Get that son of a off the field. He's fired! It is love that is at the root of our resistance. You will not replace us! There's a power in symbolism. So Colin Kaepernick takes a knee, and that becomes the symbol. That was a clip from the trailer for Kaepernick in America, a new documentary on the former NFL football player, political activist, directed by Ross Hockrow and Tommy Walker. This was a well-done documentary that takes the time to set up how great a player Colin Kaepernick is and how popular he was before he took a knee. The movie takes us back to the explosive period in July 2016 when Kaepernick decided he could no longer stand during the national anthem after a series of unarmed black men were killed by police. Kaepernick, who wasn't interviewed for the documentary, decided to sit during several preseason games during the national anthem. 
He had already said, police are getting away with murder. He had already refused to stand during the anthem. Sports reporter Steve Weich was the first to notice reports the documentary. Weich had followed Kaepernick's social media. He talked to him about it at a preseason game in Green Bay with the Packers. After speaking with Nate Boyer, a former NFL player and vet, he decided to take a knee. They felt that gesture would be considered more respectful to those serving in the military. He miscalculated, and the excrement hit the fan. Former fans burned his jersey. People protested his presence outside football stadiums, on social media, and his hometown diner removed the sandwich it had named after him from the menu. Despite the pressure, others joined him on the field and off. Lefty sports writer David Zyron, not interviewed in the documentary, explains this caught fire. First and foremost, because of football, this is the closest thing we have to monocultural product in this country. And he was a quarterback. Not just a quarterback, but a Super Bowl quarterback. That put him on a different cultural plane. Secondly, there was a movement in the streets that supported and amplified what Kaepernick was doing. And lastly, there's the reality of social media, which turned his action into a roiling daily debate for the entire season and beyond. All this was a perfect storm, which leads to the documentary's main failure. It's almost exclusive attention on Kaepernick. Aside from some graphic footage of police violence, failing to show how he's part of a broader movement for social change. Zyron has a new book out about this where he says he interviewed almost 100 people in high school and college and pro sports who took their own risks for his latest book, The Kaepernick Effect. I'm putting this on my reading list. Kaepernick in America is now streaming. There is also a new series on his life directed by Ava DuVernay coming to Netflix. Now for a light-hearted movie centered on a working-class English woman in 1957. I have never encountered anyone like you. Come on, girls, follow me. Today there's a new woman, a modern woman. I thought it was too late. Now I'm not so sure. And that was a clip from the trailer for Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, directed and co-written by Anthony Fabian. Fabian and his co-writers Carol Cartwright, Olivia Hatreed, and Keith Thompson have weaved a sweet fable of life in London and Paris in 1957. It's based on a novel by Paul Gallico. Leslie Manville does an exceptional job as Ada Harris, a hard-working housekeeper. She's the Mrs. Harris of the title. Few people really see her full potential, not her best friend and fellow housekeeper, Vi, Ellen Thomas, or their mutual friend, a racetrack cashier, Archie, Jason Isaacs, or her cruel imperial bosses, until one day she sees a, to her, gorgeous gown in her boss's closet. The dress is from the House of Dior in Paris. Her boss tells her to hide the dress. She doesn't want her husband to see it just yet. It costs too much. No matter, Ada, who has just received some bad news about her absent after-the-war husband, decides she has to have one. The dream seems out of reach until she comes into some unexpected cash, and it's Mrs. Smith goes to Paris. Once their unexpected opportunities come her way as she attempts to get the gown of her dreams, and along the way makes friends of several staffers at the House of Dior. Among them, Andre Lucas Bravo, a young ambitious accountant with dreams of his own, and Natasha Alba Baptista, a kind-hearted, attractive top model who would rather be doing something else. All in all, a wonderful, sweet fantasy with a fine-fitting ending. It had a limited run in the theaters and is now available at your friendly neighborhood DVD co-op. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. 
And that does it for our show. Thanks for, uh, thanks so much for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your weather producer this evening was Caitlin Davis. Special thanks to feature contributors Brian Standing with the 8 o'clock buzz, Harry Richardson, and Nicholas Leet for technical production. Dylan Brogan engineered this show, Nate Weggehout produced this newscast, and Shally Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz. And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.